Food, drink and all forms of hospitality always feel and taste better when they come with a dollop of real, authentic feeling. It might be a warm hello where the door swings open and a smile reveals itself from behind heavy wooden panels. Or a long, considered goodbye. It might be that cold glass of water or hot cup of tea rustled up without any fuss just at the right time. And then there are those long meals which feel that they're infused with the kind of joyous generosity that no words could articulate. This episode of Confect Corner begins with a piece which muses on the power of our grandmother's kitchen. Those dishes that are most remembered and much loved, but rarely given the culinary platform they deserve. Our report explores a book by the Athens-based writer Anastasia Miari that changes that. We'll also journey to the Caucasus to find out about how Georgian hospitality is flourishing, propelled by local traditions and wild, untouched nature. We'll also dip into a fabric exposition to learn about the future of apparel and take a deep dive into the icy, innovative history of Granita. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. I could go online and find a a recipe for a Greek grilled fish, but the reason that Yaya's food is so incredible is because of the amount of oil she puts in or the amount of garlic. You know, one of her grilled fish dishes, she puts an entire bulb of garlic in the fish. What we do now is that we actually take textile waste and we can extract the cotton from blended materials and give the cotton a new life. That's why it's called Once More. We use the cotton once more. My own partiality for Granita is nostalgia for school holidays, as a tub of whizzed-up garden blackcurrants would be chiselled away at with a fork and crunch slurped just as the sun went in. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in the studio with me. Hello to you both. Hi, uh, Sophie, on this uh, lovely summer morning here in London. Hello, hello. Marcella, we miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I will be soon there. So hello from Zurich for now. Marcella's the, coming into cloudy town. cloudy sky. It's yeah. London and then Warsaw for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Marcella on the road. <laughs> when is Marcella not on the road? <laughs> that's, that's true. The thing. I'd that's like to know. Yeah, that's true. As usual, we like to start each episode with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcella, what do you have for us this month? Apropos on the road, when we stayed in Paris for haute couture, there were also presentations of high jewellery. That's a one-of-a-kind high carat jewellery that you usually see on red carpets and so on. So many bodyguards. Discovering the new collection called uh, More is More by Maison Boucheron at the majestic Place Vendôme, this was very, very different than anything else. In my eyes, it was really a revolution in high jewellery. Creative director Claire Schwazner was very proud to show us 30 amazing pop art inspired treasures. And think of a huge ribbon bow shaped hair brooch with diamonds. Or what I loved most is a magnetic pocket of onyx and diamonds to put wherever you like on your little black dress. This was fantastic. Or an oversized necklace with a trompe l'oeil effect. I mean, this is really different than everything else we saw. And I'm really not used to wear high jewelry, how you can imagine, but I would wear those pieces at least immediately. 
Well, I did look at the collection and photographs of it, and it really is more is more. The collection is called More is More. It's so different from what Boucheron did. And I wonder, what are they responding to? Who are their customers? Why this kind of really in-your-face sort of shift to luxury jewelry? I think it's a younger, more contemporary, living kind of people who are interested in, and it's one-of-a-kind jewelry. There is only this 30 pieces worldwide, so... I imagine those pieces are sold already because they were just so different than anything else. And they didn't look like high jewelry, you know. It could be also something more from fashion side. And this was so interesting. And I would also buy this as a collector's piece because this is something between pop art and it was also Memphis design inspired. And it's one of a kind. And Sophie, how about you? I've been traveling around this month, but most recently I was just in Columbia Road in London, which is a beautiful little street where they have flower market on Sundays. But a new shop is opened by two of my friends, actually, who own the brand Ishkar. And it's an amazing brand because they are in development themselves and they spend a lot of time in Afghanistan. And then they found these beautiful glasses and jewellery at which they've been importing for about 10 years but despite the war they still are bringing these very fragile just the most exquisite pieces and rugs too across the borders so it's quite an endeavour but their new shop which is on Columbia Road is such a wonderful little trove and I really encourage people to go down there because it's staffed by incredibly intelligent people with kind of PhDs in these war studies and things but then there's an amazing sense of treasure so This Herat glass, which is from Afghanistan, it's typically very, very cobalt blue and turquoise. It's incredibly tactile and sort of almost, I want to say rough, but it isn't rough. It's wonderful to hold in your hand and it really transforms the moment of drinking into something quite special. I mean, that is my idea of heaven because in those stories I spent hours and hours because you end up, it's like a travel journal. You end up talking to the people about where they found them, the stories, the people behind them. So it's so much more than just transactional, isn't it? And it's such a community there. So there's a little bakery and beautiful little shops design studios but then you know people are popping in and out and it feels like something from the 1950s in a sense that you would go there and have a tea and a chat and then think about your purchase and maybe come back which I love about retail if you can manage to create that which I think they have so I was quite excited and I'm definitely going to be it's my new stomping ground down there. (laughs) Can I join you? Yes you can and Marcella too but Gillian what have you been doing? Tell us about your month's discovery. Well funnily like you I've been traveling all around and most of my discoveries are not in my hometown, London. But I ventured into a beautiful design gallery in London's Mayfair. Apparatus is an American lighting company about a decade old. The artistic director, Gabriel Hendefar, his background is in theatre, production design. Then for 10 years, he was a fashion designer. But then his focus really, he honed in on lighting and his pieces are theatrical, the materiality is so important to everything they do. They're horsehair and marble and glass and suede. 
And so the space of where he exhibits them is really important to him. And in some ways they're cinematic, but not overly cinematic. There's always a narrative that goes through with it. And here in London, in this beautiful, beautiful space, the narrative is on the hands and he was inspired. He's of Iranian heritage. As a child, he always noticed his grandmother's hands cooking, his mother's hands playing the piano. The women in his family sewing, hands were always very important to him. So craftsmanship is totally at the heart of everything he does. And there are paintings on the walls of his female relatives. And so that narrative of Persian hospitality, the women in his life, is really at the heart of the store. And to me, again, just shows how retail can be done and should be done to make you want to linger and experience the brand. And there's nothing like discovering somebody's creative wellspring, you know, this idea that you can go back and track this early childhood memories and that tactility and that detail that then goes into, you know, a lifetime of kind of modernism. But I think that's really fascinating that he's brought that. I'll certainly be taking a trip down there too. We start today's episode in the kitchen of journalist and writer Anastasia Miari in Athens. Brought up between the UK and Corfu, Miari has long had a passion for food writing, but prefers to shine a light on the talent of the humble, older generation she encounters on her travels, rather than star chefs. Having already spent five years travelling from Moscow to Cuba to write about recipes and stories from grandmothers of the world, it was time to get cosy in the kitchen of grandmothers closer to home. Her new book, Yaya, Regional Recipes and Stories from Greece's Grandmothers, takes us on a mouth-watering journey across Greece's mainland and many islands to the simple kitchen of Greece's Yayadas and the incredible regional recipes that lie within. Confex contributor Paige Reynolds put on her apron and sent us this sizzling report. So at the moment I'm boiling up some giant butter beans and we're going to do baked butter beans. I'm in the kitchen of food writer Anastasia Miari's Athens apartment. To celebrate the release of her incredible new cookbook, Yaya, regional recipes and stories from Greece's grandmothers, we're cooking up the recipe from Yaya Nitsa, one of over 60 grandmothers featured in the book. Yeah, this is Yaya Nitsa's recipe and Yaya Nitsa was from Thessaloniki and it's a very sort of hearty dish. I'm just going to show you how much olive oil is going in here because it shocked me. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's why I got the big <laughs> the big thing of olive oil out rather than my tiny little bottle there. It's like a magnum. Yeah, it's 200 ml. It's a cup. And that's what you're cooking the garlic and the onions in? Yeah, I'm going to sizzle two onions and a garlic that I just chopped up now, a couple of cloves of garlic in all of this olive oil. A lot of the recipes do need, I think, a minimum of 100 ml of olive oil. There's no getting around it. But actually, I think that's just what makes it taste so delicious. As well as lashings of olive oil, this dish requires big handfuls of spearmint and parsley and generous twists of salt and pepper. As you might expect, Anastasia's personal interest in the dishes of grandmothers all began with her own. I am inspired by my yaya. Um, she's from Corfu and she's pretty stern and can be quite scary. But she always showed her love for me and for our family through the food that she makes. She makes really incredible dishes with the most humble, simple ingredients and the most humble equipment. 
all of her knives are blunt. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like, I can't believe that she makes such incredible fish dishes. But I started cooking with my yaya because I wanted to, I don't know, I guess I wanted to have a record of her recipes because no food tastes as good as her food. I'd never followed her around with a pair of kitchen scales before, which, by the way, she finds very annoying. But until I started doing that, I think I didn't realize just how she would make these dishes. You know, I could go online and find a, a recipe for a Greek grilled fish. But the reason that Yaya's food is so incredible is because of the amount of oil she puts in or the amount of garlic. You know, one of her grilled fish dishes, she puts an entire bulb of garlic in the fish. So I'm always sat there eating, thinking, God, what does she do? What does she do? And actually, when you sort of peel away the layers and get under the surface and do follow her around the kitchen and start to note down the ingredients, you realise she's just putting a load of these really flavourful ingredients in there. A generous approach to ingredients is one thing all the yayas have in common. But what you might be surprised by is the sheer variety of regional dishes. We all know there's a lot more to Greek food than a classic tzatziki, or a perfectly crisp spanakopita, but Greek pasta was something new. One of the places that really shocked me, where homemade pasta is the dish that you get from this village, is this super remote village in Karpathos, which is already a very remote island towards the east of Greece, the Dodecanese. And Olympos is a two and a half hour drive up this crazy, craggy mountain road. And they only just got a road like 10, 15 years ago. So they've been sort of sealed off from the rest of the world. And pasta is their local dish that you have to try if you're there. So I was quite surprised that, you know, they haven't really had very much contact with our Italian neighbours. And yet homemade pasta is the dish that you have in Olympos, this village. With the beans on the boil and the onion, garlic and chilli softened, it's time to add another star ingredient. So this is a pepper from Florina, northern Greece, which is actually where Nitsa is from. She lived in Thessaloniki, but her family was from Florina, so she always adds a red pepper from Florina into every dish that she makes, which I think is quite a nice addition in this recipe. But I've offered an alternative for people cooking in the UK or beyond, which is a red bell pepper. In here we have some chili, garlic. I'm going to add some salt now. Maybe turn our butter beans off because I think they've bubbled enough. Okay, so we just grated some toms. Grated some fresh tomatoes in there, but let's not lie to people. There's also been a sneaky tin of tomatoes added in there because I don't think it's enough. This is what I was saying earlier about being flexible with your ingredients and the tomatoes that I had were medium and not, they weren't going to be enough, there wasn't going to be enough juice in there for the recipe, so I've added an extra tin of tomatoes in there. It's funny that you say they're medium because in the UK those would be really big, juicy tomatoes. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't clear enough then in the recipe. <laughs> Yeah, tomatoes are bubbling away, and then, oh look, I've splattered tomato on my nice, clean copy of the book. That's the mark of a good cookbook, I think. It has splashes all over it. Definitely. That's how you know, like, a dish is cooked a lot in someone's house, when you land on that page of the cookbook and there's, like, red wine sloshed all over it. Yaya's recipes are split into four sections. Sharing, comforting, feasting and treating, which, according to Anastasia, mirrors how Greeks like to eat. Out of all of the dishes, Anastasia has two distinct favourites. Lily's Chtapodo Macaronada, which is octopus pasta. 
It's incredible. You braise this octopus for a very long time in a spicy tomato sauce. Lily is the yaya that works at Climataria, which for me is one of the best tavernas in all of Corfu, if not all of Greece. And this is a very traditional Corfiot dish. And Corfiot dishes tend to be quite spicy, and this is a very good example of spicy Corfiot cooking because we took lots of influence from the Venetians who came and colonized the island. So, yeah, it's this incredible, rich sugo with braised octopus and served with very fine spaghetti. It's delicious. Another really easy one is this. It's in the comforting section. And it's my yaya's braised peas and potatoes. It's so easy. You just whack. Look, there's like three steps in the recipe. You just whack everything in the pot and step away and then you come back and have it with crusty bread and a great big hunk of feta and some olives and yeah it's just an amazing midweek dinner and then sometimes I'll have it the next day and just crack an egg into it and have that for lunch. Although the tradition of passing down recipes through generations is sure to never die out, Anastasia tells me why the next generation of yayadas won't quite be cut from the same cloth. So yayadas in Greece, they're really old school, you know. They're the old women that you see down whitewashed alleys wearing uh, the black and they sort of emerge when you're on your Greek holiday from beaded curtains or behind a crochet curtain. And, you know, some of them still ride donkeys and carry their vegetables on their heads on the way back from their allotment. And I think the next generation of yayadas are people in my parents' generation So my aunts, for example, but, you know, they drive cars and shop at the supermarket and they buy ready-made phyllo pastry. And as with all of us, they live a life of convenience, but it also means that the values of our grandmothers and the way, the simple way that these Greek yayadas lived, for example, my yaya cooks on an open flame, still in an outhouse kitchen. Now everyone has their kitchen you know, within their house, and they use an oven (laughs) because it makes more sense. It's less dangerous, probably. But it takes away a little bit of the, I don't know, the romance, the authenticity. It's really sad that these are this last generation of women that lived that way. It means that we're losing a part of our heritage and our culture. And they really are a specific breed, these women. You know, they're not like cutesy, cuddly, crocheting grandmas. They're stoic and stern and they live through a lot and Greece in my opinion is like 30 years behind (laughs) everywhere else in Europe which means that you know our grandmothers lived in poverty a lot of the women that I cooked with they never learned to read or write it's a shame because I think actually if my yaya did go to school and had the opportunities that I've had she probably would be prime minister or something she'd probably be like taking over the world Before Anastasia's yaya does indeed take over the world, it's time for us to take our sizzling butter beans out of the oven. It's bubbling away in there, but it's definitely going to come out. Ooh. From Athens for Confect, I'm Paige Reynolds. There we go. Oh, wow, it looks unreal. What a great report. It felt like we were right in the kitchen with them. Marcella, you've spoken before on this show about how a roast chicken is a comfort dish, but I wonder if there's something special about the way grandmothers in particularly cook food, and it's almost impossible to recreate their recipes in real life. Oh, Sophie, that's so true. In my case, it was my grandfather from Vienna who lived later in Prague. 
Although he noted every single recipe accurately in his little book that I still have, first of all, I almost can't read his handwriting. But then it must be also the butter, the eggs and the spices that were so different in his time. That at least is my explanation why my strudel tastes so differently from his. <laughs> well, it could be that or it could be just that context and that moment in time. Grandmothers never measure anything and I think that's the magic of it because it's actually not regulated. <laughs> it's just sort of intuition. They just sort of mix and match. I remember with my grandmother, there are no measurements really, so you can't follow their recipes. It's impossible. But I think it's the same. I remember my grandmother's very light hands. You know, when you make pastry, you have to be very, very light-fingered and flowery fingers. And I just think that that type of observation that you make kind of you can take the spirit of it but will it ever taste the same well that's because you're not a child and you're not in the kind of bosom of home <laughs> potentially well i am totally 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 addicted to a instagrammer called pasta grannies and it's beautifully filmed and edited and this food writer decided to go all around italy looking at the older generation most of them are between 85 and 95 filming the ritual of them making the pasta, the eggs, the pasta, the tortellini, the ravioli. And it is such a hypnotic art. The rhythm of it is watching the rhythm is so hypnotic. So I can highly, highly recommend following Pasta Grannies on Instagram. After years of fast fashion and impulse buying dominating the fashion industry, designers and consumers are beginning to ask themselves how their choices impact the planet. Sustainability and durability are now at the forefront of fabric production and makers are reimagining more traditional materials such as leather and synthetics. These material solutions placing preservation and regeneration of nature at centre stage were on full display at the annual Future Fabrics Expo here in London. Convex Isabella Jewell went along to find out more. It's a great industry to create change. It's a great lever because you can really influence the person in the street. You can hopefully have an impact on their lifestyle. It can have a domino effect on other things that they do in their lives. So I think fashion has an incredible way of engaging everyone and sort of rally the troops and make sure that we're really ready for change. The fashion industry is often seen as the bad guy when it comes to the environment. It's a narcotic driving our addiction to throwaway items, often made using environmentally damaging processes by people who aren't paid enough. Nina Morenzi, the founder of the Future Fabrics Expo, is working really hard to change that image, creating hope for a future in which great fashion and a healthy environment can coexist. So what's the goal of the Expo? to make it as easy as possible to find alternative materials that are not polluting, non-toxic, that are actually renewable, restorative, regenerative, so to really facilitate this kind of materials revolution. A revolution that requires radical change. Amanda Johnston, curator of the Future Fabrics Expo. We're using the word positive a lot, so not just saying less bad or slightly better, but looking for materials that have a positive impact upon biodiversity, people, planet, so we're talking about climate change, and our material dependencies are utterly linked to that. We met at the Future Fabrics Expo 2023, this year hosted in the huge event space overlooking the Thames, Magazine London. 
I was guided towards the venue by pops of colour and geometric patterns, which lit up this otherwise grey and industrial part of South East London. Hello everyone, good afternoon. Welcome to the Future Fabrics Expo 2023. We are all here because we want to design and create clothing, fashion, while not costing the earth. Our industry has to reduce emissions by 45%, as probably most of you will know, and that's by 2030, which is basically tomorrow. Inside the venue, though, were over 50 stalls representing brands from across the world, featuring their latest innovations in the sustainable fashion industry, from new organic materials to state-of-the-art recycling methods. My name's Dave Sharman, and I work in the sales team for the UK, for Novacare. One stall immediately catches my eye. They're displaying a rack of hanging leaves which are glossy and arranged in a pleasing colour chart from vibrant yellows to pinks to soft browns. So this is a leaf from a plant called the elephant's ear and what we're doing is we're growing it in Brazil. They put the plant in the ground and then after about nine weeks they go back and it's got a leaf which we can harvest leaving the plant behind. What we then do is take the leaf off to a tannery, our own tannery, and we treat it in the same way that you might treat leather to end up with a beautiful product which can be used for fashion, for interior design, home furnishings. It's very nice, but of course, vegan properties. The company behind this hails from Brazil. It's called Nova Keru, and they're transforming leaves grown in the uphills of Rio de Janeiro State into a more green form of leather. Although bee leaf is a fairly new innovation, they're already working with some pretty big brands. So we have a, an agreement with La Bouton to work with making bags, clothing, shoes. Outside of that, we're open to new customers. It is a brand new product. We've only just hit the ground running and this is our first season of selling. The products are stunning. While maintaining the feel and finish of leather, they also aren't pretending to be it. The material is distinctly botanical with the hallmark leaf veins and curved edges. And they're not the only exhibitors harnessing the power of plants. Cornelia Bammert is the founder and CEO of Nettle Circle, based in Zurich. I have been in fashion business since 30 years. I was working for big brands. And there we saw some realities 15 years ago, which were not so good, because I started before ethnology. And then I said, there must be a way to produce in a fairer or other way. And then I came up once on my research for a nettle fabric. And I said, wow, that looks good. Nettle Circle produces fibres from nettles harvested in the Himalayas, which can then be spun into thread to make clothes. So we have sewing yarns now from Mick, which just joined. We have zippers, so you can do actually a whole garment with nettles. So now we blend it, like 30%, and so we're using 30% less of cotton or other fibres. And I think at the moment it's important not to say something is bad, but just to help and say we can reduce certain things. I think it's one of the game changers. There's a lot of going on from mushrooms, mycelium. I think everything is doing something to get into a new direction. But as well as thinking about what plants we can grow to create the fabrics of the future, many of the businesses here are looking into how we can best reuse materials currently seen as waste. A field that excites me very much, which is anything that comes from agricultural waste, so from crops that are not used. That could be wheat straw, rice husks, these sort of shouldn't be waste, so it's definitely a perfect material to be the next feedstock for fashion, for fibres. So that's something that I find very 
promising and interesting. There's an ingenuity. People are really sort of switched on and receptive to the idea of thinking about, as Nina said, what we think of as waste is not really waste. There's value um, what's left in stubble on fields that is normally burnt. It's catastrophic for the environment, obviously. And that gives a secondary income as well to a farmer who's going to do a second harvest effectively. And just the ingenuity that it took to sort of come to that realisation is amazing. Nina touched on food, food waste before. We're seeing that used for dye stuffs. You know, we're still stuck in a petrochemical world of dyes. All our synthetic dyes are petrochemical-based. So we're seeing incredible ingenuity and innovation in trying to change that through all manner, whether it be food waste, whether it be bacterial dyes, algae-based dyes. I mean, we're seeing a lot of really, really exciting innovation The Future Fabrics Expo also shone a light on the work being done to improve the recycling of textiles, which can be a particularly difficult process when fabrics are blended. Currently, over half of all our discarded clothing items end up in landfills, rather than being funnelled back into textile production. So what we do is that we actually take out the cotton from the blended material. We add it with the wood, and then at the end we make this textile pulp. It's not like paper, because paper is only wood. This is more like a soft, thicker paper, I guess you could say. And it has a little bit of structure in it, because we pressed out all the water. That's Camilla Schegran from the Swedish company Sudra. She works on a scheme called Once More, which is working to enable a more circular textile system. Once More is the world's first large-scale process for recycling blended fabrics, And it's the forest that makes it possible. What we do now is that we actually take textile waste and we can extract the cotton from blended materials and give the cotton a new life. That's why it's called Once More. We use the cotton once more. So the garments that we are wearing and that we're showing here today is actually 20% recycled cotton and 80% wood. Serdra then supplies their textile pulp to companies like Lensing in Austria, who spin it into a material which looks like fluffy cotton balls, which then feed into the clothing industry. Basically, we have a big brand that's called Tensor. So when you see this on a swing tick door hang tag, when you go and buy clothes mostly, you can identify it. So it's Lysol or Modal, and the range is quite broad. You have it from underwear to women's dresses or shirts, but also like menswear, trousers, jeans. You can blend the fibers with wool or cotton, so you have amazing possibilities. The pioneers in Future Fabrics are looking forward in the hope that these production methods will be adopted more widely. I wear our fibers every day. Today I wear a skirt made out of Eco Vero Viscose and it's exciting because I was on vacation last year. I went to a store somewhere in Indonesia and they had this skirt and I just saw that it's made with our fibers. So I think this all around the world feeling is what excites me the most. Future Fabrics founder Nina Morenzi again. I think sometimes you have to look back in order to move forward. I think it's definitely a combination of innovation with what we have, what we've probably forgotten and needs to be rediscovered for sure. But when we started in 2011, it was definitely not that much around. Now it really feels like we're on the cusp of things happening. Um, so it should maybe say Future Fabrics Expo is here now. Yes, the future is now. The future is here. <laughs> yes. For Confect Corner, I'm Isabella Jewell. 
A report there by Isabella Jewell. You're listening to Comfet Corner. Nestled in the Caucasus, Georgia is a country with dramatic scenery, elaborate architecture and long-standing heritage. But it wasn't until around a decade ago that its hospitality scene started taking root. The Rooms Hotel in Kazbegi, facing the snow-capped peaks in the north of the country, was the first opening for a group that has since grown to include ambitious openings in Tbilisi and beyond. The group's activities have been hugely influential in putting Georgia on travellers' maps, accompanied by a flourishing of many creative disciplines in the country. Like most of the buildings that Rooms Hotels inhabit, the location in Kazbegi has an interesting past. A former Soviet sanatorium, it is now an elegant, characterful space filled with design details and echoes of the past. Comfex Deputy Editor Chiaru Mella sat down with the hotel's general manager, Marie Agladze, to find out about the property and began by asking her what first attracted her to it. Actually, the location was quite mesmerizing and the property itself, it's quite big. From the beginning, it used to be 153 rooms and now it's like 143. We did the renovation. So it was basically the scales of the property that really attracted me. This was first ever rooms hotel under this brand. So it was kind of interesting to look at the first property because my first job was rooms hotel in Tbilisi. So it was quite interesting for me to come here and explore rooms hotel Kazbegi, which was the first ever rooms hotel. Mm-hmm. In the Soviet Union times when Obviously, there was no private property. It was owned by the government. And they have this same building structure in several other regions of Georgia. It was the same building plan. They built this hotel in end of uh, 70s. And it worked until, until we were in Georgia. So after end of 80s, it was abandoned until 2010, when our company, Adara Group, acquired this uh, hotel. And it was absolutely abandoned it was in a very bad condition mm-hmm. and in, I would say in 11 months they managed to open the hotel they did everything they basically had to build the hotel entirely because it was in a very bad shape can you tell me more about the history of the sanatoriums like what did they represent were people sent here to kind of get better or feel better about themselves? What was the purpose of it? Uh, Usually it was sort of a benefit of the job that you usually get uh, in the Soviet Union. Some sort of touristic package that you would get as a benefit in your job. So lots of people from all around the Soviet Union would get like randomly sort of touristic packages to go and travel and explore other parts of the Soviet Union. This hotel was actually very important because it's very close to the Russian border. So lots of people who would pass by also like just to stay here and as well as people who got these special arranged visits. Do you think that there's something about the location of it and the fact that it's up here in the mountains that has always given it a vocation that is to get in touch with nature, to get better. How important do you think it is the aspect of relaxation, wellness and feeling more in contact with nature to the property? I would say this is the main thing about this hotel because although our design is quite unique, we try to emphasize the view. In our rooms we don't even have TVs 
so that people can enjoy the view to the fullest. This is the main thing about this hotel, definitely. Mm-hmm. The location, I would say, is the best in, in Holkasbegi because it's high up. And the wellness activities as well, like people usually come here to relax. This is a resort type of hotel, so definitely wellness part and relaxation is a big part of the experience that you usually have in this hotel. Was it a traditional kind of holiday place to go to the mountains and get some good air type of thing? Like what's the tradition of tourism in this area? After the Soviet Union times, this destination was not popular at all. Mostly school people would come here like for the excursions and that was it for this location. But people wouldn't usually stay here for a longer period. So it was only after the hotel was opened that the local tourism became very like strong. It has become a very popular destination. Lots of locals have opened their own hotels and guest houses. Before, there was even no accommodation to stay here and no infrastructure and no restaurants. Basically, it was only after 2012 and I, I would say it peaked in 2015. And after 2015, it became probably one of the most popular destinations in Georgia. What do you think is particularly spectacular about this region compared to other regions of Georgia in terms of the landscape. How is it different? Why is it special? I would say it is more brutal because we also have like other mountainous regions in Georgia and plenty of them actually, but they're all different. And this one is actually more, the scenery is more dramatic. Obviously you live here, so yes. what do you love about living here? Air, first of all, because it's comparing to Tbilisi, it's so much more clear and not polluted. So. Definitely, that's a big plus. Environment and all the greenery that place offers and calmness and possibility to relax, definitely. Although we work like it's a regional hotel and we have more people on weekends and we have to work the weekends and longer hours, it is not as tiring as living in Tbilisi because you avoid traffic, you avoid like air pollution and everything like that. And it's much less stressful. In many ways, the opening of this hotel and the growth of the Ajara group was very instrumental for this, but why do you think there has been such a development in the hospitality scene in Georgia in the last 10 years? You know, if there has been a real kind of mushroom effect. It was so undiscovered. First of all, the history of Georgia was very important because before 2003, before the revolution, Georgia itself was not developed enough and there was no infrastructure for proper touristic activities, so to say. So the country was not ready before that. So that's why it like really kick-started 20 years ago. So it was the moment when Georgia got discovered, I would say, and with all the features that Georgia has to offer. What about the entrepreneurship of people mm-hmm. wanting to do something? Yeah, actually, it is very important and it has also helped a lot. Lots of people began to create their own businesses. The cuisine itself started to develop and it was not like only traditional dishes that Georgia had to offer. There was also different like modern variation, which was more interesting for the modern tourists. So people were willing to develop themselves and they created their own businesses and they started to move back like for this region, was very important because lots of people who moved to Tbilisi a long time ago, after the tourism has started to develop, they moved back to Kazbeki. So it was very important how people and the local communities were involved in these touristic processes. So it was a big, big thing about the locals being involved.
That was Marie Agladze speaking to Convex Deputy Editor Chiara Remella. And to read Chiara's full report from Georgia, which includes far more than a look at just the hospitality sector, make sure you get your copy of the upcoming autumn issue of Convect Magazine next month. Head to convectmagazine.com to subscribe. This is one of my favourite stories in the upcoming issue, I have to tell you. The photography is incredible. But I know you've been there quite recently. Tell me about this place. It sounds very compelling. Well, after my festival, storytelling festival in Tbilisi, I was really lucky to have an amazing Georgian ski guide take us up to the mountains. And this hotel is quite exceptional. As Chiara mentions, it's a former Soviet sanatorium, so it's quite brutalist on the outside, but it faces the Kazbegi Mountain, which is a snow-capped mountain even in summer. It is 36 minutes away by car to the Russian border. So that's the sort of geography in the space. But what they've done is they've turned it into very much a mountain lodge with beautiful materials and antlers and wood to make it a cosy, cosy, cosy space. But definitely you feel echoes of the Soviet past with the graphics and the artwork. There is such a sense of place there that they do so well. And then within this sort of design aesthetic, there's Georgian hospitality. So the alchemy of the two together makes it a really, really exceptional stay. I once did a road trip from Tbilisi to Yerevan in Armenia, driving through this kind of incredible landscape but there is Soviet infrastructure and buildings that have just been left you know the day glasnost happened they just kind of down tools it's very haunting and it's quite interesting that in fact these people are ambitious enough to restore those pieces of heritage and consider them as heritage for the country and for the future of their industry their tourist industry because it, it is something different and people are a flocking there, as the interview says. And it does make you revisit the history. And it's layered and layered in history. But in terms of the past Soviet history and then where we are now with Russia and Ukraine and Georgia, I think the beauty of travel is it really does lure you into the past and learning about the history and the politics, which is so relevant today. Well, I'd certainly urge listeners to get a copy of the autumn issue, which comes out in early September, and read more of Kiara's amazing adventure. You're listening to Confect Corner. And finally, it's time for our final thought. This month, writer and photographer Louise Long traces the delights of Sicily's icy dessert, Granita, back to the snow-covered slopes of Mount Etna. In centuries of old, when winter fell on the elevations of Etna, the Nebrodi or Pelotarani Mountains, a bell would sound for the Nivaroli, or Men of Snow. The promise of a few coins would send these men on their ascent to gather and store the precious snow in cold caverns. Then, months later, once the heat of June rose about the town, the Nivaroli would return to their stone cellars, praying their snow harvest had survived the spring. Onto mule carts the snow would be packed between layers of salt and straw and rolled downhill to the awaiting townsfolk. This ritual changed when the ice factories arrived in the 1930s. The children of Sicily's interior missed the snow carts, but would gawp as blocks of ice went by on conveyor belts. For a few pennies, they would be soothed by icy grattata doused with syrup. Thus, centuries of Italians found refreshment in snow, from the banquet table of Emperor Nero to the 16th century invention of the pozzetto, a wooden barrel packed with snow and salt, 
encasing a zinc bucket designed to cold churn its contents. As early as the 9th century, Europe, notably Sicily, had become acquainted with Turkish and Persian sherbets, sherbets, fruity floral syrups served semi-frozen with ice or snow. By the 1960s, these sweet ices had reached the coffee houses of London, while in Naples, they had acquired florid names such as Sorbetta d'Aurora, Sunrise Sherbet, flavoured with cinnamon and candied pumpkin. Once the 18th century rolled in, such was the ice frenzy that Victor Amadeus of Savoy, King of Sicily from 1713 to 20, declared mockingly his own government as the Ice Cream Parliament. A century later, occupying Austrian troops were ordered to seize Etna's snow, even to shoot if necessary. A famine of snow, they themselves stay, would be more grievous than a famine of either corn or wine, wrote Patrick Bryden in his 1770 A Tour from Sicily and Malta. Then in 1876, Palermo's Cavalier Hamilton invented a machine to pulverise ice indistinguishable from the snow of Etna. So begins the second chapter of the story of Granita, where the fruits of the Mediterranean met with a big business of Sicilian snow. From the verb granire to granulate, Granita's closest cousins are Rome's Gracciatecha, scratched ice with syrup, and cremolata, akin to a soft-serve fruit smoothie. Every town seeks to evangelise its own recipe, with a creamy with nut milk, aromatic with wild berries, or served with great fanfare from silver flasks. In the East, Sicilians embrace granita year-round, commonly for breakfast with warm brioche col tupo, designed for dipping. The hot brioche cold granita combo is a great winter snack, says Massimo Mantaro, executive chef at San Domenico Palace Taumina, whose ornate pozzetti cart overlooks Taumina Bay. Every Tuesday of his childhood was granita day, coinciding with his mother baking bread. Today, Mantaro is a disciple of Messina's so-called real granita tradition, with an almond milk offering that is paler and creamier than its roasted almond counterpart in Catania, sometimes served as minulata, enriched with coffee. At Presto Pino Cafe in Catania, I sampled a mandola jealousy fusion, the silkiness of the almond a foil for the coarser mulberry. In the port of Cefalu, at Monshushu Pasticceria and its family-run hotel, Le Calette, Messina-style granita arrives in vintage 1960s cups, a celebration of peaches, watermelons and mangoes. My own partiality for granita is nostalgia for school holidays, as a tub of whizzed-up garden blackcurrants would be chiselled away at with a fork and crunch slurped just as the sun went in. In adulthood, not even the reputation preceding Café Sicilia and Notto, a pilgrimage site for Granita if ever there was one, could dampen the virtuosity of Chef Corrado Asena's strawberry tomato Granita, as baroque as the town's setting. London's own Granita maestro, Kitty Travers of La Grotta Isis, recalls one ultimate encounter at La Torretta Ristorante, Calabria, where pozzettis yielding green fig, cedro and strawberry granita were so good that we went straight back to order another. The trick, Travers explains, is that pozzetti freezers are not as cold as your average, so less sugar is required. It's what Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray prescribe in the River Cafe Classic Italian cookbook, when they call for nothing other than beautiful ripe fruit in season, 
If we have great pears, we'll make a granita. In Copenhagen, I went to Topical restaurant, newly opened by proud Neapolitan chef David Laudato. His menu is punctuated by a palm-sized bowl of blood orange and rosemary granita, the hue of a Campania sunrise. Some two and a half thousand kilometres from Sicily's volcanic scarps, granita continues to crystallise in new and delightful formations, always a tonic for the body and soul. Indeed, as the legend goes, Phoenician princess Oxyria, while waiting her beloved, preserved her looks with a concoction of Etna snow, honey and candied citrus. The story is a fable, but if ever a foodstuff might fulfil the promise of eternal beauty, I suggest Granita. That was Louise Long there. Marcella, have you ever tried Granita? I imagine so. And are you a fan? Sophie, I know why you are asking. <laughs> two months ago, two months ago, I was in Sicily, and in the coffee shops between Catania and Trapani, really everybody was eating huge, beautiful granitas for breakfast. For breakfast? Yes, it was also very warm, but they eat it for breakfast always. I think this is a tradition. But although I planned to try a granita really every day, it never happened. I have to confess, I'm more a fan of spaghetti vongole. Okay, well, But I'd argue the two things are kind of not mutually exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested and intrigued by this idea of you know the mountain and this wonderful gaggle of children waiting for the granita <laughs> to return. After reading this piece now, I really regret deeply that I didn't try once. Well, I'd argue you'll be back in Sicily sooner yes, than you think. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I loved reading the article because I'm just obsessed by how long ago they were able to create sort of ice, ice cream and the innovation of how they brought and stored the ice in the caves and then brought it round. And we take everything for granted now, but can you imagine centuries ago you'd be able to create these icy delicacies? I just find it fascinating, riveting. And there is a place in Majorca, it's one of the oldest, oldest bakeries, and they claim that Majorca, strangely, was the founder of ice and ice cream, which I find very, very bizarre. But they have also, it's more ice cream than a granita or a sorbet, but they serve it all day and you will see people in the morning having their bowl of ice cream. So it must be a southern thing when it's very hot that you feel like a, a bowl of ice cream. I think I might adopt that almost immediately, this kind of icy sorbet breakfast. Your children would adore it, Sophie. <laughs> But like kids, it's looking up. The summer is looking pretty good for you. <laughs> But um, it's lovely to recontextualize it and also think about that ingenuity, like you're saying, because it, it is luxury and the idea that luxury is such a recent thing it's a kind of oddity and this wonderful sensation of ice in the summer is something that everyone has always craved and was probably even more exquisite when it was so rare and you know it was so exact you know the technology behind you know those ice stores and packing it with hay and would make everything probably taste that little bit sweeter And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced and edited by Colotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady. If you have a story, suggestion or simply want to say hi, you can reach Carlotta at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. 